You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ashley Parker, White House Bureau Chief here at The Post, and our guest today is Kellyanne Conway, Senior Counsel to former President Donald Trump and the author of the newly released memoir, Here's the Deal. Thanks for joining us today, Kellyanne. Thank you for having me, Ashley. So, as we both know, uh, I covered you in the Trump White House. I managed to get my hands on an early copy of your book. I read all of it, actually, when I was home with my COVID-positive toddler. I have a ton of questions about the book, um, but I first actually want to start with a photo that was in your office in the West Wing. Um, and it was a photo of Trump's inner circle, yourself included, also Bannon, Ryan, Spicer, Rob Porter, Hope Hicks, General Flynn, getting sworn in early in the administration. Um, and, and I think a lot of people were struck by, by the almost the end of the administration, you were one of the only people in that photo still standing. And so I'm curious, why do you think and how do you think you were able to survive for so long in, in what was a notoriously difficult place to work? Ashley, it's a great question. I'm asked it often, and this is what I would say to you. It's a combination of things. Number one, I love my job. I took my first major public service job at the age of 50. Inauguration Day 2017 was literally my 50th birthday, and I loved public service. I found out very quickly that you can be one tiny molecule in that's helping affect change and have great consequences on people's lives. And I liked being a part of that. Um, the other thing is that I felt some people went there with maybe a little bit of ignorance, some with arrogance, some with both ignorance and arrogance. And some people also have needed to go out and make money, have to care for their families, move back home with their families. So there are some personal reasons that people left the White House. But I think most folks just could not sustain the kind of pace that Donald Trump wanted, the volume and velocity with which he works the way that he made decisions and his expectations. Here's somebody who is the first president in US history to be elected having never held elective office or military status before. And he brought that businessman's approach to Washington DC into the White House in a way where the worst thing you can say to him is nobody has tried that, that's gonna take three years, not one year. That will fail if you try it, you can't do that. Sure, you promised it to get elected, but change your mind. So I think there were other people who just really couldn't, you know, couldn't take it. I'd like to think a little bit of it was it was a meritocracy, and some Darwinism, but um, but also, I think when you look at some of the people there, many of them were fired, um, or pushed out. Some of them were under investigation or indictment, subpoena and scandal, and others, you know, just sort of slinked away, pretending that it was their idea, but we know better. Well, one thing I've been watching your rollout with interest, and one thing you said uh, in the Fox News special on Sunday night is that you were able to tell uh, the president not what he wanted to hear, but what he needed to know. Can you share one specific example of something that he didn't want to hear, but that he needed to know that you told him? Yes, I have many. And one I write about in the book, Ashley, if people pick up Here's the Deal, they'll see this entire episode in the cabinet room on about May 4th, 2020. So we are in the middle of the pandemic and the Fifth Circuit has upheld that part of uh, the Obamacare repeal where President Trump has basically gutted the Obamacare mandate, really the heart and soul, some people would say, of, of the Affordable Care Act. The Fifth Circuit upholds that and they have an open question that can go to the Supreme Court or not. And I'm in the minority in the cabinet room telling the president I have always uh, been against government-run health care. 
I think there are many flaws here. I think one of the biggest lies told by an American president to her citizenry uh, in recent years is you can keep your plan, keep your doctor. That was not true. Everyone will be insured, also false. But we were in the middle of a global pandemic and the president had succeeded at the circuit level of having in his tax cut and job act feature of doing away with the Obamacare mandate. And I felt you should just take the win and not move forward with full repeal into the Supreme Court on Obamacare. And I also made the point that when President Obama himself here said President Trump is taking Obamacare all the way to Supreme Court, he's going to get more involved in the campaign. We all know famously told the New York Times and other outlets that he didn't want Obama to, he didn't want Biden to run. President Obama said, you don't need to do this, Joe. But if you talked about Obamacare, he might get a little bit more involved. I also talked about how women are the chief healthcare officers of our household. We are disproportionately a majority of the consumers and a majority of the providers. And again, we're trying to figure out everything that's going on with the global pandemic. Um, I also asked Attorney General Bill Barr while we were sitting there to explain if the, at the time, two Supreme Court justices that the president had put on the court would in fact side with his point of view. And, and Attorney General Barr said, no, you can lose this seven to two, maybe nine to nothing. At the time, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the court, God rest her soul. So it was a very fraught moment. And I, what I noticed, there were 20 of us around the cabinet room table. Some Senate-confirmed cabinet members, other senior advisors, including Jared Kushner and Chris Liddell and others, and Larry Kudlow. And I think seven of us spoke up the entire time, but I was pretty, and he and I got into a heated debate about it. And I write about it in the book where I'm just trying, I say to him, um, do you know what the number one issue is to your base? And he's like, my base, I said, do you know what the number one issue is to your base? And he went through the whole litany, immigration, abortion, inflation, no, 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 no. The number one issue to your base is that one year from now, two, three, four, five years from now, you're still sitting in that chair, you're still the president. That's the number one issue. And I was trying to help you know, move that conversation along. But I have many examples like that, but I think that particular example is, an, is one of a policy disagreement, but he's the president, he makes the final decision, and he did, he disagreed with me. I lost, he, he, I lost that debate. And also just sort of the men around me either trying to get in my way or not saying anything at all when they're in a meeting where they're meant to speak up and contribute. Well, so speaking of things he did not want to hear and things his base wanted, which was for him to stay in the White House, you are someone um, who did not say that the 2020 presidential election was rigged. You accepted the results that President Biden legitimately defeated former President Trump. You did so basically at the time, and you write about this moment in your book. Um, I'm first curious, how did you come to this conclusion when so many people in his inner circle did not? A few things. First of all, he should have won the 2020 campaign outright and overwhelmingly at such high margins, comfortable margins, actually, that we're not even having this conversation. There is no January 6th. There is no Biden in the White House. I mean, we were in the middle of a global pandemic. And one argument could be, listen, folks, even if you don't like this, that, the other, we are trying really hard to get our arms around this and we can't change horses midstream. There's too much chaos, uncertainty and turmoil right now with this pandemic. Uh, but but that aside, I felt that with $1.4 billion, his reelection campaign, which had existed for two and a half years plus by that time, could have uh, gotten him the victory. And they were running against, I think, one of the most uninspiring Loch Ness monster of a swamp type of candidates in our nation's history. So he should have won overwhelmingly outright. Let me begin with that. I do hold to account 
those who were running his campaign for not helping him get over the finish line and for convincing him before the election, Ashley, you're going to win in a landslide, you're going to win in a landslide, they're going back to states like Minnesota um, and that he, that he lost handily, you're going to win a landslide. And then those same people were telling him, you won in a landslide and now we're going to prove it. And they never came up with the proof. So he was being, I, I think, cajoled by a supplicant after showman, after sycophant coming before the Resolute desk and giving him all these theories. Now, I'm heartbroken that he lost. Let me make it very clear. It's not the result I wanted. I voted for him. And looking at this Biden-Harris man-made disaster of a presidency, I would prefer Donald Trump to be the president right now because we benefited from so many policy accomplishments of President Trump. Putin was not in Ukraine. Our gas was not $5 a gallon. Babies were not hooked up to IVs in hospitals because their mothers can't find infant formula. 107,000 people did not die of drug overdose deaths. The list goes on and on, and those are the facts. But all that aside, people kept promising the president things they could not deliver. I witnessed this through the transition, through the White House, and then he was witnessing it all through the campaign. If there was evidence, I told him, I said very publicly, you have every right to contest the election results until December 14th when the electors certify the election results. Hillary Clinton had, Stacey Abrams still hasn't conceded that she lost for somehow for a job that she's running for again. So you've got Democrats who have not certified a Republican presidential election this century. They refused to on January 6, 2001, January 6, 2005, and January 6th, um, 2017. Those are facts. Put that aside and focus on this. As the president is being told, we're seeing crazy things in Arizona. You're not going to believe what happened in Pennsylvania. You're not going to see, you're not going to believe what's going to turn over in Nevada, in Georgia, in Wisconsin. He's being told that he's waiting for people to produce because the president, you know, takes people at their word when it comes to things like that. Um, last thing I'll say, uh, there's a good doc, there's a, a good movie out called Rigged put forth by Dave Bossy and Citizens United. And I think people should look at it because the difference between 2016 and 2020, when it came to Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, in 2016, when I was a campaign manager, we ran 5.9 million ads on Facebook. We had such a larger digital ad footprint than Hillary Clinton did because they had enough money to run all the TV ads. But we were going where the people were and they were online and we had to do that because we were understaffed and under-resourced. It paid off. People say, well, what did Mark Zuckerberg do to you in 2016? My easy answer, nothing. He just let the open forum be exactly that. We paid our money, we ran our ads. Uh, he also, they also offered an embed to the campaigns. Ashley, Mark Zuckerberg took a lot of heat, as did Jeff Zucker at CNN, took a lot of heat in Silicon Valley for, quote, helping Donald Trump win. Why didn't you stop them? Why didn't you, why, why didn't you refuse to run the ads, et cetera? And I think um, they did this well, big let me, correction. And I think, no, I think the Zuckerbucks don't, do bother me, and I'm glad to hear that he's decided he's not going to do that again, because a lot of these state legislatures are banning private money like that well, through these C4s you, under the guise of election integrity. I mean, you mentioned 2016, um, and I, I do want to go back to a key moment in that um, that sort of ties in, I think, to something you write in your book. And as you know, former President Trump has been accused of sexual assault or misconduct um, by more than a dozen women. And of course, in 2016, the Access Hollywood tape emerged, which you write about. But the thing I actually wanted to ask you about is you paint a picture um, of Trump that would be virtually recognizable, unrecognizable rather, to half of the country as someone who is sort of the ultimate feminist and as you write, girl boss. Can you help kind of square those two impressions of him? 
Yes, and I'm glad I stayed on the campaign after the Access Hollywood tape. I'm glad he apologized. And I saw, I was there. I'm one of the few people who told him about the tape from a Washington Post reporter. Um, first we read about it, then he heard it, then he watched it. And I saw his reaction. He didn't recognize it at all. He apologized at night. I'm glad he did. And I agree with him, Melania Trump, and Mike Pence, all of whom denounced those comments in very strong terms. The boss that I worked for on the campaign and in the White House was very good to the women and very good to working moms especially. You know, Ashley, I looked up in a random meeting at 8.20 in the morning, call it a Tuesday or Wednesday. I just looked up as I was taking notes and I quickly looked and I saw five working moms who had the highest rank in the White House in the West Wing, assistant to the president. Mercedes Schlapp, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Ivanka Trump, Brooke Rollins, and me. And between the five of us, Ashley, we have 19 school-age children, 19. 12 daughters, seven sons, at the time between the ages of two and 16. Now tell me where you're going to find women able to work at that level, at that status, for in, in a busy place, it happens to be the White House, for a boss who happens to be the president. I know we can go look in corporate America, maybe you have a handbook there at the Post. We can go look in corporate America where they brag to you that they have family-friendly policies, page 562 to 568 in the corporate handbook, and then you try to exercise those policies and you find out it's difficult. Do you have enough time reserved and you can't go on Friday? You're going to have to miss the baseball game, the dance recital. Uh, this is a problem. This is all pre-pandemic, of course, but this was a, this is a problem. And I worked for a boss who was slow to anger, who was um, often had a great deal of humor, and I feel some people wasted their opportunity in front of him if he said, what do you see? What do you hear? What's going on? What do I what do I need to know? Or what are, we, what are people talking about today? In addition to why we were in there, which was fully briefed and structured, uh, I would watch people blow that shot all the time. And I watched a lot of the women come to him with substance, with policy, with something he hadn't heard before, something in a, in a regional newspaper or um, an individual who had called who was making a meeting to come and present, say, pricing transparency in healthcare or surprise medical billing. So he was a great boss to me and he was very understanding and very compassionate. When my husband changed his mind about Donald Trump, which is fine, this is America, but seemed to change his mind about me too. And um, he was very compassionate and really stuck by me. So I have, a, I have a question about that, and you write very candidly about your marriage um, in the book. But first, um, and you're, you are not particularly critical uh, of Trump in the book, but you are critical and candid of some of the other people you worked with, most notably, or among the notable ones, Jared Kushner. Um, and his overly large portfolio was a punchline in Washington that was written about. But I want to just read a, a brief bit that you wrote about him in your book. You wrote, if Martian attacks had come across the radar, he would have happily added them to his ever-bulging portfolio. He misread the Constitution in one crucial respect, thinking that all power not given to the federal government was reserved to him. Do you think it was a mistake for Trump to make him a senior advisor and bring him into the White House? Look, Jared Kushner is very smart. He's highly intelligent. His heart was in the right place to help the country. But it's fraught to have um, your family in the White House. For President Trump, though, this was natural. I mean, that was a, the Trump organization is a true family business. Jared is his son-in-law, of course, not his child, not his kid. But the other adult children, Ivanka, Don Jr. and Eric, all got out of college and I think almost immediately started working at the Trump organization and did very well there. 
became experts in real estate development, The Apprentice. And I remember seeing a quote from Don Jr. at some point in early 2016, I believe it was maybe 2015, Ashley, where he said, look, we've just always adapted and learned a new family business. We do real estate, then we had to do TV. And he said, and now we're learning politics. And so it is a true family business for President Trump. And he's a great father uh, who's raised wonderful kids, uh, adult kids and uh, a teenager. And I think that that was natural for him. The problem is this, if your family the outside world, members of Congress, media, and then the inside world, other colleagues in the White House, don't can't don't feel comfortable questioning what you say. So you've got all this authority, very little accountability, and then there's this huge gulf in between the two. So I think Jared is very talented and could have worked on certain things, but he got involved in almost everything. And that's everything from trying to help to meddling. And then he gets to pick and choose his not just his portfolio, but now his legacy. He doesn't want anybody to remember that he is responsible for the politics of the Midwest not going well in 2020. He just wants you to remember him for peace in the Mideast. He doesn't want you to remember this wrong-headed immigration, fair, full and fair immigration, merit-based immigration reform plan he came up with in the Rose Garden uh, that didn't go anywhere in Congress. He wants you to remember him for criminal justice reform. And like I said, he did certain things very well I think he is somebody who absolutely takes the credit for things that other people did too, but that's okay. But he should give the credit to the president and the vice president. Their names were actually on the ballot. And I was just raised in a way where I'm respectful to authority and deferential at times. And I believe that um, the president, the vice president had their names on the ballot. So they're really the, the driving force. We'll see what he says in his book that's coming out this, this summer. But I, I would suspect as many of his former colleagues in the White House and administration suspect is that he's going to take credit for many things that were also brought forth by Senate confirmed cabinet secretaries, by the president himself, by other senior staffers. Look, if you were a junior staffer and Jared Kushner said, that's on hold, that doesn't serve the president, that's not a good idea, who told you to do that? Months of work could just be unraveled and, and, and be temporarily and eventually permanently put on hold. Also, I think it was very um, good uh, as, as a broad stroke idea for the Kushners to invite Democratic senators and members of Congress to their Calorama home to host them for dinners. But again, they're talking to them about issues that we have entire cabinet agencies and departments that handle. So it became confusing to them. And what did it do? I'm all for bipartisanship as a means, but not an end. And what did it really do? Every single Democratic senator who was invited there eventually went on to impeach Jared's father-in-law twice. So it sounds good hearted. It sounds, and Jared is just mean to me personally. And every woman watching this has had a colleague, particularly a male colleague, or 10, who have tried to throw logs in their path, who have gotten in their way, who have denied them and dismissed them and denigrated them. And in this White House, that was me for Jared. He just had it in for me. I think I, I look, I don't have an Ivy League degree. I grew up very modestly. We have very different backgrounds. I don't think he thought very highly of me many times. Plus I had a gift that he lacks. I'm very good on TV. And his father-in-law loved having me on TV as a messenger. And I think we all find out how hard it is to go on TV, Ashley, once we go on TV. So what was originally a compliment became a passive aggressive criticism. It's like, oh, she's good on TV, but, but what? You have to know the policies. You have to have a relationship with the principals, the president. You have to know what's going. You have to consult with so many different people when this is happening. And um, and he made sure that I got nowhere near the 2020 campaign. He put his friend Brad Parscale in there. Height is not depth. 
and he made sure that everybody knew, including you at the Washington Post, Jared Kushner is in charge of the re-election campaign. Okay, well then hold him to account for the re-election campaign. So speaking of TV, um, you had one very high profile moment that you write about in your book, and you were talking about how Jared wants to be remembered. And I think sort of fairly or unfairly, there will be, there's a certain section of the public that will remember you most or associate you most with two words. Uh, alternative facts. So you write in your book um, that this was a misstatement. Uh, you said since then that it was, you know, a, a true gaffe. But the freeze did seem to stick and capture a larger truth, which is that uh, former President Trump and a lot of his aides did often lie and mislead the public. Um, and I'm curious if there's an example of how you handled the president when you heard him say something that you knew to be factually untrue. Well, first, let me um, address alternative facts because I have an entire chapter in my book. Let me just get the chapter title. It's called Alternative Facts. It's chapter yep. 19. And it basically talks about for all the all the argument, which is silly, that Joe Biden is filled with gaps. No, he's not. He's just not a good president. He's just not doing a great job. And the polls all show that, including the Washington Post, ABC News poll, Ashley. Um, alternative Facts was a true gaffe. I never intended to mislead the president and change the relationship of the United States government with her citizenry in broad daylight. I talk about how I was delivering 38 minutes of three network ABC, CBS, NBC television interviews as the first person in the Trump White House to do that, looking into a blank camera in the freezing cold with no notes, no net, no staffer. Oh, well then why do you see alternative? I was meant to say alternative information, additional facts, and it came out the wrong way. And thankfully my husband, George, who was coming very proudly that day with my mother and our four children, to come and see me sworn in as assistant to the president. A picture you showed earlier, thankfully, he said, don't worry about alternative facts. Everybody knows you wouldn't lie. So that was very comforting to me and very true, of course. Um, so what I can't believe is that alternative facts was two and a half seconds and Russia collusion, illusion, delusion, which we're still learning about, was two and a half years. That's how people should be remembered. The reason people associate alternative facts with me is because they don't have much else. They, they still talk about it. They somehow thinks it bothers me. It would bother me if it were true, if it were deliberate. Um, and that they don't, I've spoken millions and millions of words. And there were alternative facts, the real thing, zero plus four equals zero, one plus three equals four, and two plus two equal four. So that aside, um, yes, I would, I would handle things with the president. If the president stated something that wasn't true, I would say that's actually not, that those aren't the facts, or that, that those aren't the figures. And I presumed that somebody else had given him the wrong facts and figures. So I would give them in written form. And I would say, here's that study. Here it is with the footnotes and the, and the evidence. Here's what your own government has said about that. And it would be in his briefing book. It would be on his desk. I would orally communicate it. And honestly, that's the way to go. I see all these other people writing books who did not leave on their own terms or their own timeline um, or with their relationship with the president intact. And they're pretending that somehow they couldn't speak up then. That's why they're speaking up now. Hey, Ashley, good Lord, everybody knows I spoke up then. Um, and I'm speaking up now about some other things. But I feel that was the best way to handle the president, was, which was direct information. And to remind the president of two important things I'd like to say to you, because you're at the Washington Post, and you have a big job there, Ashley, is Number one, Donald Trump presided over what I call the democratization of information. Whether you liked his tweets or not, and you all were obsessed with them, but whether you liked them or not, everybody at the same time, instantly and for free of charge, had access to a presidential communication. 
whether you're the plumber on the job, the stay-at-home mom, the CEO billionaire, everybody got a presidential communication at the same time. Number two, I think even now, with so many words spoken, written, digitized, uh, televised, I think right now as we sit here, this country suffers from what I call information underload on way too many topics. It is up to our leaders, whether you're in media or the White House or elsewhere, to make sure that there is that we correct information underload, make sure that people have enough quality, valuable, factual information on all the topics that interest them. And so I felt duty bound, even though I did not work in the press and comm shop, deliberately did not want to work in the press and comm shop, I felt duty bound to provide the president with information that he could then share with the public and cure that information underload. And then we have about five minutes left, so I want to do a quick speed round of a couple news of the day questions and then try to return to your book. Um, so the first is, I know you were gone by January 6th, but have you been called to testify before the January 6th committee? And if not, would you testify if called? I have not been called, and I think that's because I'm the one, one of the few people who have no subpoenas, no scandals, no indictments, no investigations. And folks, calm down. The Hatch Act doesn't count. But uh, so, if I, of course, if I were called to testify, I would comply with with a request to make myself available if I can provide any information. But I was very upfront on January 6th. I didn't know. I read about it in the book extensively. I didn't know what was happening. I saw a Don Jr. tweet where he was telling people get out of the. Capitol, and I quickly turned on the TV, and then I went on live TV. I went on ABC with George Stephanopoulos and said exactly what I was feeling. I called the president, and uh, I, I think there, I, I put in my book, I'm still in shock and not in awe, and I think it was a very, very sad and dark day in our nation's history. And then um, going to the Pennsylvania Senate race, um, was Kathy Barnett right when she said, quote, MAGA does not belong to President Trump, um, even though he coined the word? So it's a, it's a fascinating thing to hear from Kathy Barnett, who runs as a MAGA conservative as, up there with Mehmet Oz and David McCormick, the other two, uh, the two frontrunners who are still battling it out as we speak. She, they were all running as America first MAGA conservatives who wanted Donald Trump's support. Only Oz got that, but they all wanted it. And it's very telling about the president and the America first agenda, the MAGA movement, that they would all, the three top frontrunners with more than eight and 10 of the votes, 80% uh, of the votes, millions cast, would do that. So I think what she's saying is that, I think this is what she's saying, this is what I would say, is that um, our nation and our democracy, our constitution is such that principles outlive any president, that there are timeless principles and there are um, issues that we all care about. We want some issues to fail, others to prevail that we all care about that are timeless, that will outlive any presidency. But in terms of the MAGA movement, that is, he did coin that term. Those are his red hats. He did promise to make America great again and did and made good on those promises. So I understand what she's saying and I agree with it in principle in terms of no one president, no one individual in this country can say, uh, my my I own the immigration issue. I'm right on taxes. This is my border, et cetera. But um, in terms of the MAGA movement, of course he created. I, I think if I picked up the Washington Post on any random day, they would say that. Uh, but you know, Ashley, I think it's a good question for another reason. Right now, there's so much concentration on uh, President Trump's role in the party and endorsements and would anybody else run against him for president? I, I have a question Ashley, about that too. Go ahead. 
So, um, so on that topic, we've seen the RGA, we've seen Pompeo, we've seen former Vice President Pence all come out against Trump endorsees in recent weeks. Um, You've seen Republicans vote in the, largely vote in the Senate uh, for the Ukraine funding bill that former President Trump criticized. And in you know a multi-candidate field, Dr. Oz uh, could win, but with only 31% of the vote. Uh, J.D. Vance, who Trump endorsed in Ohio, won with 32% of the vote. I am curious, do you think something is shifting in terms of, of the power of his endorsements and or sort of like the grip he holds over the MAGA base? Uh, Donald Trump is truly the leader of the party right now, but there are many people, uh, particularly those in elective office, who also stake a claim to the America First agenda. They were there to support it when President Trump was advancing it, leading it, signing into law. And I would rather be the Republican Party right now than the Democratic Party any day of the week. It's the Democratic Party that is in chaos and crisis. They have an angry old white guy leading this party that swears and tells you six ways to Sunday, Ashley, that they are progressive and for youth and energy and the future and ideas. And they have this old, angry white guy um, against whom a majority of Americans say is doing a terrible job. They disapprove of his handling of all the major issues. Uh, the CBS YouGov poll just this week said that the adjectives they associate most with him is distracted, incompetent, and divisive. Uh, those are media polls. So I'd rather be the Republican Party where you have a former president, vice president, governor, secretary of state, and so many others all supporting candidates who are running on free market principles, border security, Putin staying out of Ukraine, which of course happened all four years, Donald Trump was president, uh, making sure shipping containers aren't stuck in, in the ocean um, on our seas, making sure babies who are hungry have access to infant formula. The list goes on and on. And with the exception of Matt Dolan in Ohio, uh, most of, or all of these candidates are really running on the America First agenda. So you're going to have multi-candidate primaries. You see record turnout in the Republican primary, including in Georgia, where disgracefully Joe Biden went to Georgia and accused their voting law of suppressing. We have record turnout. And, and I think that's great because in democracy, your, your right to vote should be protected should be um, should be yours and yours alone. And also, I believe that it, implicit in that is your right to not vote if you don't want to. But we see record turnout. I think that's enthusiasm for the, frankly, America First agenda. I think Biden endorsing Kurt Schrader in Oregon, and he lost to a progressive, um, mostly socialist endorsed candidate by about, what, 20 points? I think uh, John Fetterman, the, the Democratic nominee for Senate in Pennsylvania, Tim Ryan, the Democratic nominee for Senate in Ohio, they're hoping Joe Biden forgot their names and lost their numbers. None of them want the president of the United States to campaign with them. They don't want the vice president either uh, so far. So we'll see if that changed. But so far, they don't want their, the president of their own party. The opposite is true of Trump, where all these candidates have made the pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago to Bedminster asking for his endorsement. Um, well, I have a bunch more questions, but we are unfortunately out of time and we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Kellyanne Conway. Thank you, Ashley. Thanks for reading the book. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.